Psalm 19 is about speech. It's about God's speech. It's not the first verb connected to God in the Bible, but it's top three. First, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we're told the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And we're only three verses into Scripture when God breaks the silence, when God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said. Do you ever think about what a difference it makes that our God speaks? How can we know what's true? He's spoken. How can we know what's good? How can we know our sin? How can we know of such great salvation? Our God speaks. Psalm 19 is David's praise of the God who speaks. He praises him first for speaking through the book of nature and then for speaking through the book of scripture. And he closes with a prayer for the word of God to bear fruit in his life. The psalm is for God to the praise of his glory. And the psalm is for David, who wants the opportunity to magnify that glory. And the psalm is for us. It's a call to meditate on the speech of God to the glory of God. And all this because, yes, our God speaks. David begins with the book of nature. That's the first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The first speech from God that you will ever hear, the first days that your eyes and ears are open in the world, is the testimony from the world he's made. All of nature echoes the glory of God, telling us that this world is not the result of accident or chance, but the purposeful creation of a glorious God. We need Genesis to tell us how and why it happened, but we don't need Genesis to know that creation is. It was one year ago, one year ago this week exactly, that the Molnar family sat atop Haleakala, watching the sun set from above the clouds. I have never seen anything like it. In the beauty of that sunset, we saw something of the beauty of God. I heard someone else say of a similar experience, if the sky is this glorious, the God who made it must be even more so. Think of the most beautiful places you've been or the power of a waterfall, the majesty of a mountain range, the intricate beauty of birds or fish or coral, 
the stars and galaxies spread across the night sky. It's all so glorious. How much more glorious must be the one who made them? One of the reformers wrote, The glory of God is not written in small, obscure letters. It's richly engraved in large and bright characters, which all may read and read with the greatest ease. It's what it means that the heavens declare it and the sky proclaims it day after day pours out speech that is it's what's happening every day every day you could look at the world that god has made and hear it proclaiming his glory what a great opportunity we have any day and every day we can look around and consider what there is to see and what it says about god The world is full of darkness and sin and sadness and trouble. And so much human speech is filled with grumbling and complaining, with criticism and discontent. But at every moment, there's competing speech. There's speech that we could listen to, speech that testifies to the glory of God, speech that is good and true and beautiful, and we can hear it whenever we choose. Even the fact that night follows day and then that another day will come behind it, the sun and the moon rising and setting, ordering our time, all of it speaks to the glory of God. That's why David says the speech is poured out. It's like springs of water gushing from a mountain. Day after day after day, it just keeps coming. The creation never runs out of words to proclaim the glory of God. And that testimony can be understood in every tongue and by every people group. It's an everlasting sermon that everyone can hear and understand and that never gets old. In a moment, David will turn our attention to the second book of God's speech, the book of Scripture. But let me say that one of the strangest developments in the created order is the widespread belief that these two books are in conflict. Creation and Scripture have the same author, And that author cannot lie and cannot be wrong. There is no conflict between the books. In fact, the more you study about the heavens and the earth, the deeper you dig into the realities of the world that God has made, the more harmony and God-glorifying truth you will find. I think it was Jim Boyce who preached that whenever we investigate it by scientific or other means, we soon find the testimony of nature even stronger than we first suspected. The existence of a creator is not a simplistic but erroneous judgment naively made by the uneducated. A judgment quickly disproved as as soon as one looks into the evidence. On the contrary, the more you look at the evidence the more the heavens gush forth knowledge. I remember hearing the example of Robert Jastrow, the physics PhD, the astronomer who was a founder of NASA's Institute for Space Studies. He was one of the big brains behind the lunar landings. And he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. He was not a Christian. Uh, He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers based on his experience 
of doing this groundbreaking research and exploration with some of the world's most brilliant scientists, and everyone in the room is convinced that science and religion are fundamentally incompatible. He said it's just their starting point. We didn't even talk about it. And the way he described how it played out was pretty great. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak of knowledge. And as he pulls himself over the rock to the peak, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. This is why Paul writes in Romans that no one at the final judgment will be able to offer the excuse, no one told me there's a God. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. From the first day your eyes and ears encountered this world, you've been on the hook for hearing it proclaim the glory of its creator. The book of nature is ever pouring out speech and revealing knowledge. It says that God exists, that he has the power to create, and that he is glorious. And yet, as prolific as that book is, there's quite a bit about God that the book of nature can't tell you. It can't tell you about God's holiness and the offense of our sin against him. Or about our goodness. I'm sorry, his goodness. We have no goodness. Or about his goodness, his covenant and faithfulness to that covenant. It can't tell you about his mercy or his grace or his love. And that's why even after creation, God wasn't done speaking to us. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I heard someone use the analogy of going to see an artist's work at at an exhibition at an art gallery. And you could study each of the pieces that they've made and learn something about their capability and their work. You can learn what interests the artist and their level of skill. You can learn how they apply their craft. But no matter how intently you study their works, there's still a lot you wouldn't know about the person who made them. You don't know their life story, what they love, if they're kind or they're cruel. Even from the most detailed study of their work, there's still a lot you wouldn't know. And so it is with God. That he is, creation speaks loudly. And that he's powerful and glorious. But to know God personally, you're going to need more than just creation. If you look closely, David tips his hand to this fact in the way that he's writing. Notice that when he's praising the book of nature, the first six verses, look for words that refer to God. 
you'll find one of them. You find the generic word God in verse 1. Now look at verses 7 through 9. Praising the book of Scripture, in those verses, David switches to Yahweh, Lord in most English translations, and he uses God's personal name six times in three verses. In Scripture, God reveals himself to us in a distinct and detailed personal way. Theologians call it special revelation as compared to the general revelation that we receive through creation. And that's what David praises here, the glory of God as revealed in Scripture. The revelation whereby God makes himself personally known to all his people. The glory that the heavens are declaring belongs to someone. Scripture tells us who that someone is. Verses 7 through 10 are astonishingly beautiful. C.S. Lewis called them the greatest poem in the whole Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. And the phrases alternate somewhat between what's true about the word and what's true of its effect in us. What's true about the word? The word of God is perfect. It is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, true, and righteous. It endures forever. Kids, when someone reads from God's word in this pulpit, you'll often hear them add, this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Inerrant means that it does not have any mistakes or untruths in it. Infallible means it cannot have them because these are God's own words they cannot be wrong and so they are never wrong every single thing that is needed to possess perfect wisdom is here there's nothing missing that's why we say the scriptures are completely sufficient Today, when someone says that God spoke to them, that he gave them a revelation that isn't here in Scripture, our first thought should be, why would he need to do that? Scripture is completely sufficient. Scripture teaches us how to walk in light rather than in darkness. It teaches us of the need for faith and the content of what that faith must believe. Scripture teaches us the difference between good and evil, between beautiful and vile. Now, we'll come back to this in a second, but skip ahead for just a minute to David's prayer that starts in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me? Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I, I jump to this for a second because David gives us an important insight into how the book of Scripture works in our lives. It's only by the power of God. That's why many can hear or even learn words of Scripture without reaping the benefits David described. We need God to work in us through his word, or we will never be changed by that word. David needed God to show him his sin, to warn him against sin, and to show and lead him in the way of blamelessness. 
Another preacher put it this way, God the Holy Spirit must illuminate us or all the sons in the Milky Way never will. Humble, candid, teachable minds receive the word and the Spirit makes them wise unto salvation. The Spirit must give us ears to hear. The Spirit must teach us what the Scriptures say and that we are right to believe them. The, scripture, the Spirit must change our desires, making us desire the Word of God, making us want to hear from God and to obey it. Billions of people have access to Bibles, but it's only when the Spirit works in us that we can desire the Word of God more than gold. It's only when the Spirit works in us that these words are made sweet to our taste like spiritual and emotional honeycombs. And when the Spirit does that work in us by the Word of God, then the book of Scripture has the effects that David lists in verses 7 through 10. What does Scripture do in the lives of God's children by the Spirit? It revives the soul. It makes the simple wise, and it rejoices the heart. Remember the last time you were hungry? I mean, I mean, really, really hungry. How did those first few bites taste to you? I kind of laugh at myself because I know that I'm nowhere near starvation, perhaps you've noticed. And yet, the first couple bites of that sandwich, I thought, this has saved me. I can live now. I will survive it has a pretty reviving effect, doesn't it? That's the effect of Scripture on our souls. Our souls are parched and hungry. They're weak and weary. What will revive them? The Word of God. After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, the tempter came to Christ encouraging him to find revival for body and soul in all kinds of places. But do you remember what our Lord said? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God revives us. It also makes us wise. Wise unto salvation and unto life that walks with God. That's why it quickly said, once our souls are revived and our minds are made wise, our hearts can rejoice. It all comes as a package. Whenever we learned and whenever we're reminded of the forgiveness of sin, it should produce joy. We've been talking for weeks from the Psalms about the peace of mind that comes from a clean conscience. When scripture teaches us how to have that peace of mind through love of God and neighbor by the power of the spirit, it should produce joy in us. When we learn and whenever we're reminded that this obedience is not to earn favor with God, but to walk in the favor we've already been shown, we should have joy. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And remember, as David is writing this, as he's thinking about these things, David doesn't even know about Christ. <laughs> when he admired the heavens and the earth, 
He didn't know that by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth. The same phrase that all things were created through him and for him. And when David heard and read the scriptures, he believed them, but he did not know specifically of whom they spoke. David didn't get an Emmaus Road experience where Jesus interpreted to him all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. David didn't see Christ in the scriptures because Christ hadn't yet been revealed in them. But David did, as another pastor put it, read both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work, believing with all his heart, my father wrote them both. Let's talk for a minute about meditation. It's kind of become all the rage, hasn't it? Most of our phones now come with an app that will nag you to meditate. You can pay for subscription services to nag you to meditate. Celebrities love to talk about their meditation practices. Some high-performing athletes swear by it as well. But here's the truth about meditation. It's a helpful and important practice if you're meditating on the right things. But how can you know? Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Meditation, whether on purpose or an accident, is so powerful because meditation is not an accidental or quick or fleeting thought. Meditation is when we take something into our minds and we turn it over again and again. Meditation is a repeated focus on a matter or matters that we, consciously or unconsciously, have deemed worthy of all that effort. What we meditate on often dictates how we view and interpret everything else we experience in life. And we can meditate on the wrong things. If we're not careful, we do meditate on the wrong things. We meditate on the evil that has been done against us or what others have that we weren't given. We can meditate on our basis instincts or on all the things that could go wrong in the future. Meditation is powerful. We're turning it over in our mind. It occupies our thoughts at length. Meditation can lead us to anxiety, lust, anger, cynicism, and discontent. But what if that's not what we want? What if we want lives of hope, security, peace, contentment, and joy? How can you know what meditation will lead you to the light rather than to the dark? You know, because your God speaks. He speaks promise to be your rock and your redeemer. He speaks instruction of what is acceptable in his sight. I read this week that the Holy Spirit inspired Psalm 19 so that you could strengthen your heart in Christ today. 
You need to see God's glory in the heavens for yourself. You need to love his word. The sky and the scriptures are teaching God's servants. You need to meditate on these things. That's the example David sets before us. The words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart. Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Follow the example of David and meditate on these things. Follow the example of the greater David, Christ, and turn to them for revival in your life the same way you would turn to food and drink. Meditate. Meditate on the goodness of God's promises and his faithfulness. Turn those things over in your minds. Take the speech from the book of nature. Take the speech from the book of scripture. And together with them, proclaim the glory of God. This will not happen on accident. You know it. This is not our subconscious default. Our subconscious default is not to turn over in our minds the goodness of God and the hope that we have in Christ. It's to turn over the bills. It's to turn over the sicknesses. It's to turn over the future of our children. It's to turn over our hurts and our frustrations. We meditate on these things. What if instead we prayed with David? the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would come not from our circumstances and not from our hurt and our pain and not from our sin, but would come from the speech of God himself. The speech of his glory in nature and in scripture. We can know because our God speaks. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.